I can't tell you what an incredible honor it is for me to be here. This is uh, my spiritual alma mater, if you will. Though I was a believer for a number of years before coming here, that's about all I was. I had no real understanding of what the spiritual life was all about. And fortunately, Pastor John Miller took me under his wing. That was probably a very dangerous thing to do, but he did it anyway. And um, I don't even have the words to describe how many times I've thought of his ministry, his example, his teaching, and how many times I've mentioned this church and its ministry to people all over the world. So I stand on hallowed ground. The last time I stood in this pulpit, I actually took my boots off uh, because I realized I was standing on holy ground and uh, as an expression of my gratitude and honor to Pastor John Miller. And I'm going to be referring to him uh, from time to time because we're going to be looking today and next Sunday at the profile of a faithful shepherd. And while it's always good to be able to look into Scripture and see what Scripture has to say about what a shepherd should be, how much more wonderful it is to be able to point to a man who exemplified what the profile of a faithful shepherd was all about. And so I'll, I'll be referring to Pastor Miller. We're going to look this morning at the profile of the shepherd in his personal ministry, that is one-on-one -on -one with the flock. And then next Sunday, we're going to look at the profile of the shepherd in his public ministry to the body as a whole. Uh, we're going to begin, we're right close to it with that 1 Peter 4.10. We're going to be in 1 Peter chapter 5. We're going to look at three different passages of Scripture, and I just want to give you a word of warning uh, so that you'll know when we break. <clears throat> My uh, several um, Traumatic head injuries seem to be coming back on me, and I'm actually losing my hearing. Very, very hard for me to hear, so uh, when you talk to me, talk a little bit loud, people tend to want to talk very quiet. And I'm trying to learn to read lips, but I, I, uh, I have to have my hearing checked out and see if there's anything they can do about it, but uh, it does make it helpful at home when Nan asks me to help her with things. I don't know what she's saying. I keep saying, what? What? Finally, she gives up. Join me, if you will, at the throne of God's grace before we open to 1 Peter chapter 5. We will then be in Matthew chapter 9. We're going to finish up in Psalm 23, so you can be looking forward to those passages. Allow me once again to just ask God's blessing on our time together. Now, Father, as we open your word, we recognize both from the standpoint of the teacher and the students that we can do nothing without Jesus Christ. How helpless we are in our own intellect, our own capacity to grasp spiritual truth, certainly to implement the things that we're about to study into practice. Human intellect, human strength, human abilities fail us. And so we are reliant on God, the Holy Spirit, who has promised to be with us, who indwells each and every one of us who have trusted in Jesus Christ. And Father, we look forward to his skill and expertise in taking the word and applying it to each of us individually according to our needs. So we ask that the message will be clear, that all distractions will be kept away, that you will place your mighty sentries around this gathering and uh, keep anything of the enemy out and allow us to grow in grace and truth. Let your word come alive to us now, we ask in Jesus' precious name, amen. I was told years ago that when a man stands up in front of an audience, people in the audience consciously or subconsciously ask themselves three questions. These three questions are going to be important this morning to a degree. Uh, they will be much more important uh, in our topic next Sunday uh, with the public ministry. But the first question is, can I trust you? 
whether we realize it or not, when a person stands up, we want to know if they are trustworthy. Is what they're going to give us reliable information? Is it something that's going to impact our soul? Is it something that's going to aid us in facing the many trials that we live in, and particularly in a time such as we are living in today? Uh, we are in a very perilous time of human history. We're living in a time of historical crisis. It touches all of us to greater or lesser degrees, and certainly in the days ahead, uh, I think it will touch us even more. So you would be asking in your subconscious possibly, or maybe consciously, can I really trust you in what you're about to relay to us? The second question is, do you care about me? Is this really something that you're offering to me or is it all about you? Are you up there to get recognition or praise or applause or make a point? Or are you really here, we could say, for the flock? Is the shepherd really there for the sheep? Do you care about me? And that's a matter of compassion. So character and compassion are extremely important. Last question, also very important. Do you know what you're talking about? Do you really have a grasp of what you're about to say? Or are you just going to throw, a lot, throw around a lot of uh, theological words and phrases and, and uh, nice scriptural statements and uh, be done with it and be on your way. Do you know what you're talking about? And that has to do with content, the content of the message. You alone can be the judges of whether or not those questions are going to be answered. Uh, but I think of them often as I stand up to teach because they are really at the heart of what it means to be a faithful shepherd. A shepherd who cannot be trusted is not a shepherd. A shepherd who does not care for the flock cannot be trusted, and a shepherd who doesn't know where he's going. You know that there are a million books out on leadership, aren't there? Uh, you can go to the bookstores and you find all kinds of books on business leadership, ministry leadership, military leadership, every kind of leadership. But you know, when you really boil it down, leadership comes down to one thing. Leaders know where they're going. They know where they're going. And those who want to follow, those who want to reach that destination are going to follow and they're going to arrive at the goal. So we begin in the personal ministry with 1 Peter 5, and I'm going to read verses 1 through 4 because this deals with the imitation of Christ. This has, of course, at the heart of it what I mentioned earlier, and that is a matter of character. Reading the first four verses, the elders who are among you, I exhort, I who am a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ and also a partaker of the glory that will be revealed, shepherd the flock of God which is among you, serving as overseers, not by compulsion, but willingly, not for dishonest gain, but eagerly, nor as being lords over those entrusted to you but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the crown of glory that does not fade away. You'll notice immediately that there are three titles for leadership in this section. The first, of course, is elder. The second, overseer. And the third, shepherd. Uh, these three titles are brought together in the role of the pastor teacher. And uh, not only here, there are actually three passages in the New Testament where these three titles are applied to the same individual. And what they really indicate, elders speaks of authority. There must be authority in every institution that God has ever established from marriage to family to nation. He always establishes a position of authority. And so the elders, going all the way back to the elders of Moses, uh, were men who had to exercise authority. The overseers, uh, this really expresses the need for taking responsibility. Uh, if your job is to oversee, to watch over, if you will, the things that are going on to make sure that everything is being done properly and in order, uh, you have to take responsibility for that. And with responsibility, there's going to be accountability before the Lord. And then finally, of course, 
the shepherds speak of the care of the ministry, caring for the flock. So we see these three titles brought together, and then we see a series of contrasts. We see the contrast of the suffering of the present time with the glory that will be revealed, and this should always be the perspective of those in leadership. Right now, it's a tough road. Uh, I can't tell you how many young pastors that I have helped to uh, enter into the ministry, uh, teaching them, raising them up, counseling them, sending them off, <clears throat> and I always remind them this is the battle. We are in the battle phase. This is the struggle. This is the difficulty. The glory will come. And God is very gracious and he provides blessings along the way and encouragements and things that are uplifting to us. But we need to recognize that we're on a battlefield. And uh, as your church uh, is in a pastoral search, uh, you're going to need to find a man who is able to embody these qualities and these characteristics to a degree. None of us measure up all the way. All of us are weak and frail. All, all of us will fall short. But uh, it says a lot about a man who is aiming at the goal, aiming at the objective. And so we're suffering now, but we do it in light of the expectation, the anticipation that there will be glory in the future. You know, when Jesus taught his disciples to pray, he taught them to pray that God's name would be glorified that God's name would be honored. That's here and now on the battlefield of life. But he also taught them to pray, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And so we really live with a foot in two worlds. We've got a foot in this world of sin and sorrow and suffering. We've got a foot in the future by faith, recognizing the day will come when the tests, the trials, the difficulties will be over. I don't know about you folks, but I know for me, I look uh, more and more eagerly and with more and more longing for the day that that is going to come. I pray incessantly, even so come Lord Jesus. I long for that day when the trumpet will sound and the angel will shout and the Lord will descend from heaven with the voice, the archangel, the trumpet of God and the dead in Christ will rise first and we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them to meet the Lord in the air, and I look for that with eager anticipation and longing. But it's going to come when it comes. You hear people say, well, if the Lord tarries, I have news for you, he never tarries. God may wait, but he's never late. He is always exactly on time, and the rapture of the church is going to come at the very precise moment that he has planned. And the very fact that it hasn't come yet tells me we need to buckle up and batten down the hatches and prepare ourselves for even greater spiritual battle. Those who are in the position of leadership, exercising that authority, utilizing that responsibility, and of course, the care of the flock as the shepherd need to be rightly motivated, not by compulsion. In other words, you don't do it because you have to. I have to tell you, I've known many pastors who seem to do what they do almost like they have to do it. I have to do it. Um, if, if you're not chomping at the bit, if you are not eagerly anticipating the next opportunity, the next mission, the next chance to open the Word of God and express the Word of God to people, I don't know what would motivate you. Why would anyone in their right mind go into the ministry? You know, when I came to Christ back in 1965, I prayed two prayers. Dear God, I want to serve you. I just asked two things. Number one, don't make me a pastor. And number two, don't take me to China. <laughs> well, obviously, both of those prayers went down the tubes. But we have to be eager and motivated, not just in and of ourselves, but by the Spirit of God. And that's true, whatever gift we have. Nan and I, on the way down, listened to Bob's class from, I think, a couple of weeks ago. Uh, really enjoyed listening to him on spiritual gifts and uh, was uh, really challenging and everything. And, you know, each and every one of us have our ministry that is God-given. I had to chuckle because he told uh, during that class, those of you that were here will remember, that he asked Pastor Miller, how can I know my gift? You remember what the response was? Just do it. Well, 10 or 20 years before he asked that question, I asked that question. How can I know my spiritual gift? 
Guess what kind of answer I got? Same one, just do it. And I always tell people, if you're looking for your gift, be like a person who's just gone into a big business and you start out in the warehouse and all you are is a stock boy and you excel at being a stock boy. And if you excel at being a stock boy, someone's gonna come along and move you to a higher position. And if you're faithful in that position and if you excel at that post, you're going to be moved higher. So when you come into a local church, you just take the lowliest position, uh, clean the church, clean the toilets, uh, do the menial task, be faithful, guess what's gonna happen? You're going to keep getting promoted until you come to the level of that unique gift that God has given to you. So we have to be rightly motivated whether we're talking about the pastor or anyone uh, as a member of the body of Christ, not for dishonest gain. Uh, to me, I, I don't quite get it. People go into the ministry to make money. And I guess it works for some of them. Uh, I guess if you get a mega church, uh, you can become a millionaire and there are guys that do it, but why in the world would you want to trade earthly gain and take that instead of eternal reward? Uh, it's it's short-sighted. Yeah, it's just not the way that it's to be done. So not for dishonest gain, but eagerly. Uh, the word eagerly is uh, a kind of a word that uh, means that you have a passion to move forward. You are driven to the ministry, not as being lords over those entrusted to you. And this is something easy to fall into. You know, to take the passage uh, or to take the position of the pastor teacher uh, sort of as a dominating position. That's not our job. Our job is not to be a ruler. Uh, I've often told people, yes, there is authority in the local church, but it is not military authority. We do not run according to military authority. We run according to scriptural authority. And how did Jesus Christ exercise his authority? He exercised his authority as a servant. And we need to learn to do that. So really here we're, we're seeing some of the things that are examples of what a faithful shepherd is all about. They have to do with character. And they have to do with answering that question. Can I trust you? Are you trustworthy? Are you reliable? Are you going to lead me where I need to go? And if you just turn with me to Matthew chapter 9, we'll touch on the second one. Matthew chapter 9 is a wonderful passage of Scripture. To answer the question, do you care about me? Do I really matter or am I just uh, a face in the crowd? Am I just one of many? It says in verse 35 of Matthew 9, then Jesus went about all the cities and the villages. Notice what comprised his ministry. Teaching in their synagogues, preaching the gospel of the kingdom, and healing every sickness and every disease among the people. So there's teaching to those who are believers. There's preaching to evangelize those who are not. And then in his case, there was healing of the sicknesses and diseases among the people, but basically it is caring for the day-to-day the -day needs of the people. What's pressing on them now? Who's hungry? Who needs clothing? Who needs shelter? Who has a need in the fundamental basic areas of existence? And how can we meet that? And it says in verse 36, when he saw the multitudes, he was moved with compassion. As he looked on those multitudes, he was moved with compassion. Uh, literally, the Greek would say, shaken in his guts. That's, that's kind of a uh, rough translation of what it really means. There was, there was something within him that went out to those crowds of people. He was moved with compassion for them because they were weary and scattered like sheep having no shepherd. You know, when a shepherd looks on a flock of sheep, now I understand a little bit about this because when I was a kid, my dad used to send me out uh, to shepherd the sheep. 
just as a little kid, five, six years old, we had to take the sheep out to the sheep pasture. We had to watch them because there were woods on one side of the sheep pasture and there were things growing in the woods that are not good for sheep to eat. If the sheep get in there, they get sick, sometimes they die. So our job was to sit in the shade and watch the sheep eat. You can imagine being a five or six year old kid, how long a day would be uh, watching over those sheep. And of course, I didn't always do my job faithfully because on the other side of the woods was a creek and it was summertime and it was hot and I knew that water was for kids playing in and sometimes I wandered off and failed to do my job, but I always got a very quick and abrupt reminder that that was not my job. But the point I want to make is this. You never look on a flock of sheep as a flock. You look on a flock of sheep as individuals. The shepherd has to have discernment. The Lord Jesus Christ looked on those people and didn't just see their faces, didn't just see their external circumstances. He looked deep into the hearts and the souls of those men and women who had flocked to him in the wilderness, who were following him from place to place. And as he looked on them, the thing that drew the compassion from him was the condition of the souls of the people. And as he looked on their heart, looked on their soul, looked on their brokenheartedness. And of course, you'll remember his very first message in Nazareth uh, in Luke chapter four. He quoted from Isaiah, actually didn't quote, he was handed the scroll. It was one of those lucky events of God, you know, where God kind of lucks out. He was handed the scroll and the reading from the scroll that day was from Isaiah 61. And it was the passage that talked about him coming to heal the brokenhearted, to lift up the dis the discouraged and uh, discredited and to uh, help those who were downcast and so on and so forth. And that was his mission. And here we see the expression of that attitude as he looked out on a body of people, large group, thousands of people, and he saw individuals who were hurting. I don't know where you come from this morning, but I would venture to say that there's not a person here who doesn't have a need. I don't know what your need is. But I do know that I have a task this morning, and that task is to somehow meet whatever that need is that you came with. You may have walked in here with a broken heart, and of course, the book of Ecclesiastes reminds us that oftentimes a broken heart is hidden behind a smile. And so we walk in and we smile and we greet everyone and we act as if everything's fine, and yet we're dragging a shattered heart behind us. It may be that you've just heard Terrible news. A family member, a loved one, someone in uh, deep distress, maybe uh, struck down with disease, um, accidents that happen constantly. It could be financial, it could be personal, it could be relational. Whatever that need is that you came in here for, if I do my job and if I surrender to the ministry of God, the Holy Spirit, this whole message is not for you. This whole message is for the flock. But there's something in the message where God is going to put his finger on your soul and your conscience and say, this is why I brought you here this morning. This is the part that is for you. And it may simply be one statement. But if you can walk away saying, this is the thing that struck me, this is the thing that I believe God had to say to me this morning, then I've done my job and you have certainly received it. So as he looks out over this multitude and he's moved with compassion, he saw that they were weary and scattered like sheep having no shepherd. There's nothing worse than sheep without a shepherd. You know what happens to sheep without a shepherd? They die. They die. They fall off a cliff. Believe me, having worked with sheep as a kid, they are the dumbest, dumbest animals on the planet. And they were usually led by one rebellious old ewe uh, who would always do exactly the wrong thing. And if she jumped off in a ditch, believe me, all of them would follow right behind her. Kind of reminds me of the population of this country nowadays. Just following like sheep. You know, they, when they run sheep into the slaughter, you can hear the bleeding of the sheep as they're being slaughtered and all the rest will just keep following right along. Boom, down goes that one, another one takes its place. Boom, down goes that one. Sheep without a shepherd. That's why the local church has pastors. 
because the role of the pastor is to guide the sheep and to care for their needs. Notice that he says to his disciples, the harvest truly is plentiful, the laborers are few. Therefore, pray the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. And I won't take time going into the next chapter. I believe the disciples took this command seriously. I believe when he told them to pray that the Lord of the harvest would send out workers, so they found a quiet place. Maybe they joined together. Maybe they did it privately. And they prayed that the Lord of the harvest would send out workers. And guess what? In the very next chapter, the Lord of the harvest, which is the Lord Jesus Christ, sent them out. Be careful what you pray. If you pray that God will raise up someone to meet someone's need, he's probably talking to you already. He probably already has you in mind. Lord, I sure wish someone would encourage so-and-so. Well, there you go. There is your task. There is your ministry. Why? Because if the Lord put it on your heart and moved you to pray that he would send someone, guess what? It's not a matter of here am I, send someone else. Here am I, send me. And so he sends us into the work. But what we see in this brief little section is the compassion of the Lord Jesus Christ. And it brings us back to that question, do you really care about me? Do I really matter? Or am I uh, just someone to fill the crowd, someone to put in an offering, uh, someone to say, I have so many people in my church, or do I matter as an individual? These are things that those of us in teaching positions, leadership positions, those in the ministry as a pastor must keep foremost in our minds all the time. The Lord Jesus Christ is the perfect example of all of these things, but it's the perfect example to which each and every pastor, minister, shepherd must strive to reflect and to imitate. And that leads us from the imitation of Christ to the motivation of Christ to the personal blessings of being under a faithful shepherd, if you'll turn with me to Psalm 23. You know, if I were to ask you the question, and I could have done it before we turn to this passage, and I could have said, what is the most famous of all the uh, verses in the Bible? And you would have said to me, John 3.16, right? Most famous verse anywhere in the world. And it's always been interesting to Nan and I as we've traveled all around the world. The favorite verses of people in America are also the favorite verses of people everywhere else. And it's not because they heard that they were favorite verses here. It's because those verses speak to the soul, speak to the heart, and speak to the needs of people. And, of course, John 3.16 uh, is right there at the top. But if you ask people what is the favorite parable, what is uh, the most famous parable of all the parables that Jesus ever taught, you'll find out it's the same all over the world. It's the parable of the prodigal son because it speaks to us and it reaches the need of our heart. And when we ask the question, and I do this uh, just for fun as I travel around the world, what is the most famous of all the Psalms? Well, you guessed it, comes right down to Psalm 23. But here's an interesting thing about those three different passages. What is it that makes them so famous? What is it in them that uh, draws people to them? And I have to conclude that it's primarily one thing. It's their simplicity. I have discovered, after years of trying a lot of different approaches, methods to Scripture, you know, like here we are in verse 1, and we're going to write down 35 points on verse 1, and away we go with our notebooks. And I have found that as far as transforming people's lives, that has very little effect. Usually the thing that transforms people's lives is some simple truth expressed in a dynamic way that hits the heart and the soul of that person where they walk away a changed person. And I think John 3.16, the story of the prodigal son, and Psalm 23 are passages that do that. I know that there are many of you here that could quote this by heart, but let me read through it, and then I'm going to go back through these six verses very quickly, and we're going to deal with the issue, do you know what you're talking about? The character of the shepherd, the compassion of the shepherd, and the content. The Lord is my shepherd. This is, of course, personal ministry between David and his Savior. 
The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. What a statement of confidence right there. He makes me to lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside the still waters. He restores my soul. Anyone in line with that need? That is one of the greatest needs we run into. He leads me in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. For you are with me, your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup is overflowing. Surely, goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. And I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. What an expression of met needs. I can't find anywhere in Scripture a single passage that expresses such a fullness of needs being met as we find here. And because of that, it's an expression of great confidence. And I want to just hit on these three and kind of build on the two passages we've already looked at, taking you back to 1972. 1972... I stumbled through those doors and I came into this church and I claimed, well, actually, let me back up. It was the other building at first. Remember the other building? That was all there was. This wasn't even here. So I stumbled in through the doors of that church, confused and tormented. I was a student at Arizona Bible College. Just to give you an idea of, and I'm not trying to knock anyone, I had some tremendous professors, uh, but there were frustrations. I remember when we were going through Ephesians in one of my Bible classes, and by the way, I graduated without a degree. The reason I graduated without a degree is because I wasn't there to get a degree. Uh, I've been called doctor all over the world. I, am a, uh, I have a degree in nothing. Right. When I went to school, I had to take classes in uh, English grammar. I had to take classes in chemistry. I had to take classes in anthropology. I had, you know, all of these classes that were required classes. And you, I went to the registrar and I said, I don't want to take this class. And he said, you have to to graduate. And I said, who cares? I came here to study the Bible. This semester, the book of Romans is being taught. I'm going to take the book of Romans. Next semester, 1 Corinthians is being taught. I'm going to take 1 Corinthians. I took all Bible courses with a couple of others that I just couldn't get out of, and I graduated with a diploma. And that was fine with me. I remember as we were in the book of Ephesians, we came to the command, be not drunk with wine, wherein is excess, but be filled with the Spirit. And I went to my professor and I said, we're commanded here to be filled with the Spirit. How can I do it? And he said, uh, I think you need to talk to the dean of men about that. I went to the dean of men and I said, I asked my professor in Ephesians. He sent me to you. Scripture commands us to be filled with the Spirit. How can I do it? He scratched his head for a minute. He said, I think maybe you should talk to the president of the college. Well, it just so happened as I was walking out, the president of the college came walking by. So I stopped him and I said, I've asked my professor. I asked the dean of men. They both sent me to you. I want to know how can I be filled with the spirit? Here was his answer. I've been meaning to do a study on that. And when I get done, I'll get back to you. Let's see, that was 1970. That was probably 1970. He hasn't gotten back to me yet. I don't think he's going to do it. <laughs> right? Now, every pastor is going to have people ask questions that they don't have an answer for. But you know what? We have the resource right here. I always tell people, and you would be surprised in... Uh, settings that we get into all around the world, seminaries, Bible institutes, pastors, gatherings. I always give time for question and answer. You can imagine what that turns into. It gets pretty lively. I allow people to ask me any question they want to ask me. And if I don't have a ready answer, I say, it's here in this book. I will get back with you tomorrow. 
because our job is to have answers. And so Bible college to me was a little bit frustrating. And when I came in the doors of this church, I found something that I had not found yet. I was saved in 1965. I'd been a believer for about five years and I stumbled through the doors of this church. And you know what I found? I found a man that had answers. I found a man that when I came to him with a text of scripture, he was able to explain that text of scripture. When I came to him with a personal problem, he was able to give me counsel. When I was lacking in wisdom and decisions that I had to make, he was able to give me direction and instruction. And it really didn't start in this church because many of you may not know, when I came to Arizona Bible College, guess who was a student there as well? Pastor John Miller. Uh, it was not because he thought they were going to teach him anything that he didn't already know, but he had started his education and had been interrupted, I think, when they moved from New York to come here. And he just decided, you know, I started something I need to finish. And so he went uh, and he was a student at Bible college. So I knew him before I became a member of this church. And I used to love to sit down and talk to him because there were two things that he expressed to me that, I probably wasn't really even conscious of. Grace and truth. Grace and truth. You know, the embodiment of the character of Jesus Christ, full of grace and truth. And then a strange thing happened, but I'll get to it here in a minute. I just want to go through here and I want to pick out what a faithful shepherd does as a reflection of Jesus Christ. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. Why is that? Because of the grace of God. The first thing that Pastor John Miller impressed on me was that I needed to orient to the grace of God. Now you need to realize that when I came in here, I was wrapped up in legalism. And if you're wrapped up in legalism, you're also wrapped up in shame, guilt, and depression. So I came through those doors tied up in a million knots and I started hearing something that sounded too good to be true. The grace of God the compassion of God, the mercy of God, the provisions of God, the fullness of it all, and I was blown away. I just couldn't believe. It was like when I first heard the gospel. You know, I thought good people go to heaven and bad people go to hell. I knew where I was headed. And when I first heard the gospel and heard that Christ died for our sins, that he made salvation available to us as a free gift, that all we had to do was reach out and take it with a hand of faith, trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ. I remember when I heard that as a 15-year-old kid, and I said, only God could do something like that. And then I went from the joy and the freedom and the liberation of the gospel into the slavery and depression and discouragement of legalism. You know, legalism is where you cover up all your own sins and judge everybody else. That's the way it works. When David said, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want, he was saying his grace is sufficient for me. He will be faithful to me. He will supply all my needs. And as I met with Pastor Miller and began to study under him, I began to realize that God's grace was also sufficient for me. You know, he did an amazing thing for me one time while I was at Bible college. Both he and I rode motorcycles. His was a lot nicer than mine. He had a Triumph 600. I just had a little Honda 305. But I got in a really bad motorcycle wreck almost right in front of the Bible college. I'm coming down the road at 50 miles an hour and a lady turned in front of me, made a left turn in front of me and then stopped and I slammed into him, went over the top of the car, landed on my head, my helmet popped off and I went tumbling down the street. That was one of five traumatic head injuries that I've had along the way in my life. I think they're all catching up to me, uh, but that's okay. I'm close to the end of the race. They picked me up, they got me to a hospital, uh, stitched me up and, uh, you know, some folks took me in where I could be uh, cared for for a little while. And somewhere along the line, I said, what about my motorcycle? I forgot all about it. It was laying there wrecked. The front end of it was completely smashed in. And they said, well, somebody picked it up. Well, guess who that somebody was? That somebody was John Miller. John Miller picked up my bike. By the time I recovered enough to get back on it, he had completely repaired it. Fix it like new. 
I didn't even know him well at that time. I wasn't even a member of his church. Why did he do it? He did it because he knew I was a poor Bible college student and I needed transportation and the grace of God compelled him to do what he did. I shall not want because the grace of God is sufficient. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. You know, sheep are uh, easily terrified. And when you can take a sheep and when you can put them in a place where they have still water and plenty of food, you know what they do? After they've drunk and after they've eaten their fill, you know what they do? They lay down. Do you know how to tell when you have a contented flock of sheep? They're laying down. They're at peace. They're at rest. And that was the next thing that John brought to me as I sat. That was my chair in this place. That's why I'm sitting there this morning. I remember walking in one time and someone had sat in my chair. Now you have to understand, back in those days, I used to wear a, bu a fringe buckskin jacket. I'd always come to church in a fringe buckskin jacket. And I walked in and I'm standing right at the side of that chair and I'm looking down and finally they looked up at me and I said, you're in my chair. <laughs> Not the most gracious individual, but that was my chair. And Nan and I always sat right where we are right now. He restores my soul. To have a member of the flock that is at rest, that can understand what it means to be at peace. You know, we called it in the old days, we called it the faith rest life. He introduced me what, into what it meant to live the faith rest life to take the word of God seriously, to take the promises of God seriously, and then to rest in them. And I had a million problems, difficulties, complexities that I was dealing with, and he taught me how to rest. And I used to call him on the phone. His poor family, Janet, was so patient with me. I'd call him on the phone tied up in knots sometimes, nine o'clock at night. Can I come over and talk to you? Yeah, his door was always open. And how many times I ran to him when I was in need, when I was troubled, when my life was turbulent, and I walked away at peace because he led me to that faith rest experience. He restored my soul. You know, it's a wonderful thing when a shepherd can restore the soul of a sheep because until that soul is restored, you can't make any progress in the spiritual life. And so the idea of deliverance from false doctrine, of which it's everywhere, and deliverance from misconceptions of what the Bible is talking about and what the spiritual life is all about, and to understand what the scripture means and how it's implemented in life is what it means for a shepherd to restore the soul of a battered individual and set them on the right track. Notice what it says here, he restores my soul. I can give you the Hebrew words for all of these, but it's interesting, the word for restore is shuv, which is the Hebrew word for repentance. Essentially what it's saying is you're going the wrong direction. You need to be turned in the right direction so that you can follow the path. And what is the path? It is the path of righteousness. He leads me in paths of righteousness. Why? For his name's sake. Could I just say to each one of you, every day of your life is an opportunity for you to bring honor to Jesus Christ. Every day. Every opportunity, every situation, every difficulty, every trial that you and I face is an opportunity for us to bring honor and glory to the Lord Jesus Christ. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. How about if we start right now and we walk and live in his kingdom as members of the body of Christ and let the world around us, our friends, our family, our, our relatives, see a little bit of what that kingdom is really all about. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Uh, you may think this is strange, but John's still with me. He's still here. His teaching, his example, and I'm not, not here just to glorify him, but to use him as an example. In, in all my life, I've never seen a greater example of what a shepherd should be. And I've seen a lot of people. I've rubbed shoulders with some really big names. 
but I have to tell you, often the unknown and the unsung are the ones that are going to be sung and praised in eternity. Isn't it interesting that he talks about the valley instead of the canyon? Even the words he uses are taking the most terrifying thing to any member of the human race and making it kind of insignificant. Yea, though I walk through the valley, not the canyon, of the shadow, not the reality of death, I will fear no evil for you are with me. Your rod, your staff, they comfort me. You know, a shepherd not only has to be a comforter and a consoler, sometimes he has to be the one who disciplines. The rod was used to defend against the wild beast. The staff was used to discipline the sheep, and a good shepherd has to do both. He has to be willing to confront, to correct when it needs to be done, and he has to be willing to stand between the flock and the dangers of the wilderness. And friends, let me tell you something right now. We need shepherds that are fighters. We need shepherds that are warriors because we are living in a world where you're not going to have to go to Africa or China or Papua New Guinea or any of the other places that we've gone. Every mission trip we've ever gone on, I've always told Nan and anyone else that goes with us, go prepare to die. Don't go if you're not prepared to die. Well, we've been all over the world, and it looks to me now like the most likely place for me to get killed for my faith is right here in this country. Uh, because we as a nation have lost our mooring and our direction, and we are unraveling at the seams. Could I just encourage you, be not afraid. I will fear no evil. Be not afraid of the news that you hear. Be not afraid of what's going on. I just heard this morning Iran's within five days of getting a nuclear weapon. Be not afraid. Actually, the easiest way to go out would be a quick nuclear blast. It'd just be like a fuzzy, warm feeling for a minute, and next thing you know, you're in eternity. Have no fear. We are here for this time. We were chosen by God to be born in this generation. We were chosen by God to be believers in a corrupt and a perverse generation. God has us here for a reason. Let's not miss the reason for which we have been placed on this earth. And we certainly will if we give in to fear. You prepare a table before me. Here we have three elements of what it means to meet the need of the sheep, the table, the anointing, and the cup. The table, in my mind, refers to the Word of God, the anointing, the ministry of God, the Holy Spirit, and the overflowing cup is the enablement that He gives us in supernatural power to meet the challenges of our time. We have more than sufficient to do what God has called us to do if we are simply willing to live by faith. He ends with the confidence, and this is a thing that comes from learning the faith rest life, understanding the greatness of God's grace, seeing what the right path is, turning away from all the wrong paths, overcoming fear with faith. All of these things come down to the fact of a confidence and an assurance that says surely, absolutely, without question, goodness and mercy, not will follow, will pursue me all the days of my life. Why? Here is a very important point. God's grace pursues faith. God's grace pursues faith. You're not required to produce the grace. You're asked to do one thing. Trust. When you trust and when you face each day in that faith, you're going to find out that the goodness and the mercy of God is after you. You can't outrun it. You can't escape it. It is going to follow you like a hound. And goodness and mercy follows us all the days of our life, and we live in the expectation and anticipation of dwelling in the house of the Lord forever. But could I just suggest to you, let's live in the house of the Lord right now. Jesus said, abide in me, and I will abide in you. And if we do that, we're going to not only bear much fruit, 
but that fruit will be our assurance that one day in his presence, we are going to receive eternal rank, eternal position, eternal reward, the illustration of the crowns, because we were faithful. What is the job of a faithful shepherd? To teach you to be faithful. To teach you to be faithful. I'm going to end with that, and I'm going to close with a prayer, and uh, I will start out, and then I'm going to leave time for a couple in the uh, audience that are going to pray, and then when they finish, by the way, pray loud enough so I know when you finish, or I'll be standing here like an idiot with my thumb in my ear. Uh, besides, I think when we pray, we should be bold in prayer. So a couple from the audience will pray, and then I'll close us out. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, what a marvelous privilege it is to come before you to open your word and to sit under the tutelage, the instruction, and the ministry of God the Holy Spirit. How I pray that needs have been met this morning. How I pray that possibly uh, correction that was needed has been carried out. And how I pray that each of us will walk away with something that we carry in our pocket, in our soul, uh, that is going to carry us um, as we go forward in life. Father, hear the prayers that are offered to you now uh, as we wrap up our session together. Gracious Father in heaven, as we conclude our time together this morning in your word, I just want to pour out my heart to you for this local church. I want to pray that you will bring the man you already have in mind. You, you already know who uh, is the man to fill this slot. I pray that you'll bring him to the attention of this congregation. I pray that he will be a man of character, that he'll reflect the Lord Jesus Christ in all that he says and does. I pray that he'll be a man of compassion who can stoop to the hurts, the needs, the cries of the people. Father, I pray that he'll be a man of content who knows your word deeply, who can teach it richly, who is able to demonstrate it powerfully to those who are following as he leads them in the path of righteousness, not for the sake of our recognition or the recognition of this church, but for the sake of the honor and the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. Let your hand be upon this congregation, let your spirit fill it, and let the word of truth go forth with power and authority once again from this pulpit as you bring the man that you have chosen to this place. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.